No doubt you will have uh, heard the echo of a number of New Testament texts when you sing that second psalm, like the words at uh, Jesus' baptism, for one, and uh, likewise at the end of the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, the rod of iron is wielded in Revelation chapter 12 by the Christ. And so David's rule over the nations that were around the, the land of Israel become uh, symbolic and they antic- it anticipates the reign of a greater than David over not just the nations around the land of Israel, but of all the nations of the earth. And so that's where we find ourselves actually in 2 Samuel chapter 7 as God promises David that that he will have a dynasty, that he will rule, and that reign over the nations will last forever and forever. Now, if I had up here a half of a donut, and I were to say to you, here, you can have a half of the donut, would you respond Grateful that I gave you half a donut, or angry that you didn't get all of the donut? Hmm? I tell my children all the time that is a test of character. If you get half the piece of candy, are you glad for the half, or are you mad that you didn't get it all? And what's true for children is also true for adults. Are you glad for what you have, or are you angry about what you don't have? You have a, a certain place that you live. Uh, you're, you have a spouse, or you're single. Uh, you have children, or you're childless. You have a church, you have a job, you have clothes. Uh, you have a variety of these things. All the things that you have have been given to you by God to a significant degree It has been a matter of His providence that you have what you have and don't have what you don't have, given that you've no doubt made some mistakes and cost yourself some things. It's all under His providence anyway. Uh, But the question is, about those things that you have, are you happy about what you have, pleased with the blessing and gifts of God, or are you unhappy about what you don't have? Do they compare unfavorably with what other people have? And so you do you find yourself envious of those who have more and likewise angry with God because He's given it to them and not to you? And here's a test that you can apply to yourself to help answer the question. Can you sympathize with those who have more than you do? In whatever way you want to measure more. Better marriage, more materially, a better family, whatever. Given that they have all that they have, when they are afflicted or they have trials, are you able to sympathize with them? Or do you always draw the conclusion, well, but look at all that they have. They think they have problems. You ought to see what I have. Yeah, well, they've got a few problems, but you haven't seen anything until you've seen mine. And does that inability to sympathize with another person in their affliction, does that betray uh, an attitude of envy in their direction or even displeasure with God for having not given you more 
of what you think that you deserve and you ought to have. I remember a, a conversation that took place between um, one of the ministers with which I served at uh, the Granada Church in Coral Gables and Emily's mother. And uh, he was saying that it was difficult for him to serve a rich congregation because he felt like that those who had so much did not really have problems. And uh, she said to him, uh, calling him by name, saying, you need to realize that behind every door there's a broken heart. Uh, trials and afflictions are not uh, just the, 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 the preserve of those who are poor and those who, who are uh, 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 without materially. And our uh, attitude toward those who have will often betray our own attitude toward the donut that we're eating. And whether or not we're happy that we have half the donut or whether or not we're angry with God that He has not given us the whole thing, as it, as it were. Now, in our passage, David, in one sense, has just received a, a disappointing message. It has been his dream that he would build a house for God. God had given him so much, and so he wanted to give back. And so he brought the ark into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6. And his next dream was that he would be the one that would build a house for God. And God tells him, you will not be the one who builds a house for me. And he says instead in verse 11, I will build a house for you. And he says in verse 13, your son will be the one who will build a house for me. And so David experiences the death of a dream. And I think we shouldn't sell that short. This is something that David wanted to do, and God takes it from him and won't allow him to do it. And yet, as we're going to see in this extended prayer at the end of 2 Samuel 7, David is thankful for the part that God gives him to play, whatever that part might be. You might say, in response to that, well, but, you know, God more than compensates, doesn't he? Because after all, he gives to David a dynasty. A dynasty that's eternal, that will last forever. And so even though David doesn't get to build a house, look how much God gives to him anyway. Of course David is still thankful. And the answer that I believe that we ought to give to that response is that is in fact always the case. It is always the case that God is doing exceeding and abundant beyond all that we can ask or think. It is always the case that our cup is overflowing. It is always the case that in everything we can give thanks, if we count our clothes, our food, our roof, our wheels, our everything that we have, He more than compensates for the things that we don't have. And so we can say uh, with the, the psalmist that he has withheld no good thing from his people. And so the key, the key is never how much of the donut do you have. The key is not uh, how many toys that you've got in your playroom. The key is a matter of character. 
And how you respond to half of the donut is a matter of what is in the heart, uh, what kind of character you have. And I don't think you'll ever see it anywhere more clearly than you do in this passage. Beginning in, in verse 18, as David receives the news, the twofold news, that he will not build God the house, but God will build his house. Here is David's response, first of all, of humble gratitude in verses 18 through 24. Verse 18, then David the king went and sat before the Lord, probably going into the tabernacle or the tent that uh, he had erected as a tabernacle. And he said, who am I? O Lord God, and what is my house that thou hast brought me this far? This is obviously a deeply felt, um, moving expression of humble gratitude by David. He reflects on all that he has, on all that God has done just up to this point and delivering him from his enemies and establishing him as the monarch and king in Israel. And drawing all that together, he says, who am I? What is my house that you should have done all this for me? He doesn't say, oh, Lord, I had my heart set on doing this one other thing, and you're depriving me of it. Why can't I do in addition to these things? Why can't I build? Why can't I be the one whose name will be known through all of history as the one who built a house for God? Why do you deprive this of me? Oh, that would have just been the perfect cap for a successful career. Rather than isolating, like I think is the tendency for us too many of the times, rather than isolating the one thing that he has been deprived of, the one thing that he doesn't have, that just slips aside. That just is pushed off to the side. And he he weighs the, 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 the whole mass of God's blessing and the bounty that he has received. And his conclusion is, of course, not... Well, yes, given all my gifts and all my service and all that I have done, of course God has done all this for me. He's overwhelmed of the sense of his own insignificance. And he cannot but cry out in prayer, Who am I that God should have done all this for me? It is a a beautiful humility. And I believe it works in two directions. I think that he compares himself in light of the greatness of God. And he says, who am I? In light of the God who is so holy and the God who is so great and the God who is so powerful, who made the heavens and the earth, who governs us, sustains all things, the God in whom we live and move and have our being, in light of the greatness of this God, who am I? that I should have received this blessing from His hand. In other words, I am not worthy to have received this blessing from a God who is as great as this God is. Jacob said a very similar thing in Genesis chapter 32. In verse 10, he said, God said to, Jacob said to God, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of, of all the faithfulness which thou hast shown to thy servant. See, this is, a, this is the sense, I think, that overcomes all of God's people. 
When they truly reflect on who they are and who God is, they cannot but draw the conclusion, why me? You remember that stanza from the the uh, great hymn, How Sweet and Awful is This Place, where where the songwriter says, why was I made to eat? Why was I made to come when others stand outside and don't come in? Why me? The Apostle Paul, writing of himself, refers to himself as as the least of all the saints. When he compares him with Almighty God. And then, likewise, when he compares himself even with others. You see, David says, who am I and what is my house? Well, what was his house? Look at verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be ruler over my people Israel. What was his house? His house wasn't anything. His house was from the other side of the tracks. They were not a prominent family. They were not amongst the great ones of the earth. They had no social standing. They had no status. They were shepherds. They were common people. They were ordinary people. They were of the the farming and the shepherding community in Israel. And God took him from there. And so he says, who am I and what is my house? Who am I in comparison with Almighty God? Of course, I'm nothing. But even then, who am I in comparison with everybody else? Who who are my family? We're no better than anyone else. Why should we have been given these gifts? Why should I have been exalted in this way? Uh, Why should I be be, be given this kind of status and be blessed in the the way that, that I have been? In other words, David has the objectivity to look at the whole situation and to say, knowing his own heart and his own corruptions and his own weaknesses and knowing of the greatness and the the grandeur of God and His glory and His holiness and then knowing other people and saying, well, frankly, you know, I'm not much even in comparison with other people. There's this one who's more intelligent. There's this one who's... Uh, more gifted artistically. There's this one who has, uh, has this, this uh, family background. There's this one who has this educational background. Uh, there are others who bring more to the table. And uh, as a child of God, David would no doubt share the, the sentiment of Paul in 1 Corinthians 4-7 when Paul says, what do you have that you didn't receive? I mean, even in light of what you do have, you know that it was all God's gift anyway. That that ability that you have that that is rewarded in this world, Uh, that uh, that gift of personality that you have, that that gift of intelligence that you have, that athleticism that you have, that uh, artistic or musical ability that you have, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't? Isn't that all part of God's giftedness as well? And so as he compares himself with God, and he knows his own heart and what he truly deserves and what he's truly worthy of, and he compares himself with others, and he considers the the abundance that he has received, all of the bounty of God, material and spiritual, eternal and temporal, his conclusion His glorious conclusion, his exemplary conclusion is, who am I? And what is my house? 
that we should have received all this, that thou should have brought me this far. What did we do? This is a, as pure a response to grace, I believe, that you'll find in all of the Scripture and in all of human history. This is the pure response to a right understanding of the graciousness and goodness of God. When you realize who you are and what you deserve, you're overwhelmed with a sense of God's goodness to one who is so utterly undeserving of these things. For one who is like Paul, the least of all the saints, for one who is by nature a sinner and a rebel, and to have been called to these things and to, be, to have been given these gifts. How can we respond except to say with David, who am I? And this ought to be your, your response when you reflect upon just about everything in life, when you reflect upon your salvation. Is it the cry of your heart, who am I? When you reflect on what you have materially, the good things of this world, is your response, who am I? My family, why should we have been blessed in this way? He goes on then in verse 19. And yet, this was insignificant in thine eyes, O Lord God, for thou hast spoken also of the house of thy servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. He says, look, as though the kingship were nothing, then you also have promised me a dynasty ongoing into, into the future. Not just for me, but, but on. And this, uh, this reference to, the, to this is the custom of man is, is a very difficult uh, phrase to interpret, but he seems to be saying something about uh, this is the way of blessing for humanity in following God's ways. Um, his blessing is to be found. The, the custom there uh, perhaps being understood in a broader sense of principle. This is, the, this is the, the, the principle through which the blessings of God come or, or the manner in which the, the blessings of God come. And then in verse 20, and again, what more can David say to thee? See, he's so overwhelmed. He doesn't even, he, he says, I've run out of words. I, I just don't even know what to say now. Uh, words fail me. What more can David say? For thou knowest thy servant, O Lord God. You know my gratitude. You know, you know, uh, uh, you know how incredulous I am at, at, and how inadequate my, my thanksgiving and my words are to express I'm so overwhelmed by your graciousness and your goodness and, and all that I've received, I, I can't find the words to express it. For this reason, thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, and there is no God besides thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And so he, he, he is overflowing with, with thanksgiving, for God and for the good, good gifts of God and for, for all that, that, that God has done. At verse 21 again, For the sake of thy word and according to thine own heart, thou hast done all this greatness to let thy servant know. We skipped over that verse, and it's an important one. 
Because David there is recognizing that the source of David's blessing ultimately is not to be found in David. And David knows that. It's for the sake of thy word that these things have happened. And according to thine own heart. He knows that God has been sovereign. It's for those reasons thou hast done all this greatness to let thy servant know. I've, I've mentioned a, a number of times, and I come back to it myself in my own contemplation of matters, the matters of salvation. Uh, that, and I was mentioning it to the voting membership class this morning. That, that uh, I grew up with a number of other young people who grew up in the same church, heard the same Sunday school lessons, heard the same sermons week after week. And for some reason, they believe, they, they don't believe, and I do. For some reason, I believed, end up in the ministry, they didn't believe, and half of them ended up in jail. That's the truth. Heard the same Sunday school lessons, the same sermons, week after week. And you want to ask yourself, what's the difference? I mean, where, 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 what caused, what, what is the foundation of that difference? Now, my mother might be tempted to say that Terry was just a good boy. But and then again, she might not. <laughs> but Terry knows better because Terry knows his own heart. And Terry knows, like you know, that the distinction between you and the unbeliever is not some good thing in you and it's not some virtue in you. Just like David knows it's not been his virtue that has brought the blessing of God. It has been the sovereign goodwill and pleasure of a gracious God that has brought all this blessing to him. And so he lifts his heart in praise and in thanksgiving and humble acknowledgement for all that he has done. Overwhelmed that he should have been so favored. Overwhelmed because he knows his own heart. And he knows he's no better than anybody else. And he knows he didn't deserve it. And yet, God has been pleased not just to bless, but to bless and bless and bless again. And so he pours out his heart in praise in verse 22 and in verse 23. And what nation on earth is like thy people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, and to make a name for himself, and to do great things for thee, and awesome things for thy land before thy people, whom thou hast redeemed for thyself from Egypt, from nations and from their gods. By the way, does David believe in the sovereignty of God? You see all the these and thous? Who, who is the primary subject in all of these, in all of these expressions of his thanksgiving? Look, let's just look at it again. Thou hast established for thyself thy people as thine own people, and thou, O Lord, hast become their God. He knows that it's been a sovereign God who has done all of these things. And he lifts his heart in thanksgiving and prays that he and his people have been 
the beneficiaries. I believe that the starting point for a heart that is as profoundly grateful uh, as David's is, the starting place for a heart that always views the donut with gratitude for the half received rather than the half not received. The starting place is the conviction that I deserve absolutely nothing. The starting place is the conviction that I was born in sin and deserve hell. And anything at all better than that is a matter of God's amazing grace. What I receive less than eternal separation from God and the torment of hell is a matter of His amazing grace. And so whatever I receive, spiritual or temporal, in this world or in the next, whether it's my salvation or whether it's the laces with which to tie my shoes, whatever it is, I receive it with a grateful hand, knowing that it comes by the amazing grace of God to one who deserved absolutely nothing. And so at every point, for whatever I receive, I am able to say with David, who am I? And what is my house that I should have received these gifts? Well, then he goes on rather remarkably and then prays for the fulfillment of the promises he's just received. Now therefore, O Lord God, the word that Thou hast spoken concerning Thy servant and his house, confirm it forever and do as Thou hast spoken, that Thy name may be magnified forever by saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and may the house of Thy servant David be established before Thee. You see what he's doing? He's praying for the very thing he just was promised. He's saying, now God, go do the thing you just said you were going to do. Let's read on. He's going to continue to do it. For thou, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, hast made a revelation to thy servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, thy servant has found courage to pray this prayer to thee. He says, I never would have prayed this otherwise. I would never have dared to assume to pray, God, build me a house. I would have never asked for a dynasty. I would have never asked for the kingship. But you promised it. But now that you've promised it, fulfill the promise. Verse 28, And now, O Lord God, Thou art God, and Thy words are truth. And Thou hast promised this good thing to Thy servant. Now, therefore, may it please Thee to bless the house of Thy servant, that it may continue forever before Thee. For Thou, O Lord God, hast spoken and with thy blessing, may the house of thy servant be blessed forever. What's he doing here? Why, why is he praying for the very things that God has already promised him? I think there's a couple of things he's doing. I think, number one, he's, he's really saying this. He's saying, let me make sure I got this right. In other words, he is so overwhelmed by the, by the magnitude of these promises He's, in fact, 
saying, let me repeat this back. Have you ever done that when you've gotten a message like directions and you want to make sure that you've got them right? So you say, let me repeat this back to you, make sure I've got it right. I think that's something what David's doing here. He's saying, this is too much. Let me make sure I've got this right. Have you not promised thus and thus and thus and thus? So that's part of it. He's repeating it back to God to confirm it. And I think the second thing that David is doing by, by praying, he is guarding himself against presumption. Because God has promised these things, that is not an excuse for laziness or for disobedience. David is not now permitted to go to bed and to lie there and to wait for God to fulfill the promise. He's not to take uh, his ease uh, on a bed of roses and uh, wait for God to do all these things apart from David's obedience and apart from David's efforts in the directions in which the promises of God are heading. And so to pray for the things that God has promised is a way of guarding yourself against presumption in thinking that because God has promised, then I need not do anything, not even obey. And I think that the, the, the third reason why he prays it is because prayer is a means by which the promises of God are fulfilled. It's closely connected with the previous point. How is it that people get saved? Well, people get saved because the people of God pray for people to get saved. They get saved because God is determined to save people, and He's a sovereign God, but they don't, He doesn't ever save them apart from means. And what are the means? The means are the preaching of the gospel, aren't they? The witness of the people of God. So we raise money for missions. We send out people to preach and to teach uh, the scriptures so that others might be saved. And among the things that we do is we pray. Because prayer, like proclamation and witness, are means by which people get saved. Now, it's an invisible means. It's a less tangible means. It's not as obviously a means and in a materialistic world like the one in which we are currently living, it's difficult for us to believe that we're not actually just wasting our time when we pray. But the fact of the matter is, it's an invisible but a very real, true means by which the promises of God are accomplished. So James can say, you have not because you what? You ask not. There's a direct cause and effect relation between the prayers of the people and the progress of the gospel. So that if you don't have, it's because you don't ask. And it could be that David understands that connection. And so when he receives the promise of God, his instinctive response is to pray the promise right back. And pray, oh Lord, fulfill that promise. And the very prayers that he utters will in fact be a part of the means by which the promise is fulfilled. That's always the case. That's why we always encourage uh, each other to pray the promises. You have children. You want your children to be saved, don't you? You want them to grow up believing and trusting in Christ and serving him always. Well, what do you pray then? You pray the promises of their baptism. You pray the promise to Abraham that we repeat at every baptism, that I will be a God to you and to your children. You pray the promise of Pentecost. This promise is for you and for your children. Now, that's the way I pray for my children every single day. I just remind God of his promise. I pray the promise because I don't believe it. No, because that's the means by which they will be saved. Remember that promise, O oh Lord, and fulfill it. You are bound to your promises. 
And it's by praying them that indeed God is moved to fulfill the promise that he has made. And so somehow in the mystery of providence, there is a cause and effect relationship between the thing that is promised and our praying of the promises. And we are no more allowed to presume upon the promises and fail to pray than we are allowed to presume upon the promises and fail to preach. Right? Can we say, well, God, you're going to save your elect? And so we're going to sit here in this room and say nothing until you save your elect. Or are we required to bring the message to them? Right, we're required to bring the message to them. And we're required to pray for them. Because only God can do the invisible, hidden work in their hearts. Which will bring about the change. You follow the reasoning? It is a means. It accomplishes in the same way that the visible, tangible means do. And so David has received these great promises. He's overwhelmed by the promises. He's overcome by them. Ten times in this passage, he refers to himself as God's servant. He is so humbled by what he has received. Seven times he refers to God in this this passage as sovereign Lord. Seven times he refers to the promise to build the house or the dynasty that God has promised to build. And why does he pray as he does? He prays because he's grateful. He, He knows his own unworthiness. He's grateful and moved deeply within his own soul. And so he cries out, who am I? He's grateful for what God has given and what he has further promised beyond all that he has given. The little bit that's been taken away, that's, that's that's not even a blip on his radar screen. He doesn't even acknowledge the existence of that. It passes that right, 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 right beside. He's not going to let the little mole, the molehill of deprivation hide the mountain of abundance that he has. And he prays back that promise that God will fulfill all that God has promised, knowing that the prayer itself will be the means by which the abundance that has been promised will be received. And let that be an encouragement to your prayers. Has God promised you that if you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved? Yes. Then call upon Him in prayer to do so and tell Him of His promise. Has He promised to forgive all your sins? Then remind Him of the promise and pray for it. Has He promised to cause all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose? Yes. Then pray it back to Him. In every circumstance... So that in everything like David, you might give thanks. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess to you that this world, with all of its advertising and its consumption mentality, robs us of our joy highlights what we don't have, makes us feel deprived and unhappy. And we confess it to you and repent of it. 
And we acknowledge with David that we have received exceeding and abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. How good you are and how much we have been given. Oh, Lord, we give thanks. And we praise you and thank you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.